and welcome to our podcast, How Therapy Works, a non-denominational guide to psychotherapy for new and experienced therapists. We're here to help you understand what's going on in your sessions and what to do next. This is a standalone podcast, as well as a chapter-by-chapter companion guide to Dr. Smith's book, Psychotherapy, A Practical Guide. I'm Jeffrey Smith, Associate Professor of Psychiatry at New York Medical College, and we're here to reduce some of your anxiety about being a therapist. And I'm Amelie Southwood, a mental health counselor in private practice, certified in EMDR. Today, we're going to introduce you to a few of the most helpful concepts to clarify the work we do. This podcast is a companion to chapter 17 in the book. Chapter 17 is titled The Second Helper, Conscious-Based Emotions. And in it, Dr. Smith, you um, discuss pride, shame, and guilt as either helpers or impediments to positive behavioral changes. Could you tell us a little bit about about this? Yes, I, I want to introduce this chapter a little bit to say it's it's a really rich chapter that a lot of clinicians don't understand very well. Uh, I, I give a talk sometimes called the forgotten superego. Uh, I, I think somewhere back a few decades ago, maybe in the 60s, it, it became unfashionable to talk about good and evil and, and, and so the conscience kind of got thrown away, but it is actually a, a very interesting and, and unique and separate function of the mind. And, and so this is all about what happens, not when people are lacking a conscience, but when the conscience is functioning the way it's supposed to, but it's doing the wrong thing. It's helping the non-conscious problem solver to get us to, to act on negative, maladaptive behaviors. And so in that sense, it's one of those helpers we talked about in the last uh, chapter, one of those things the mind does to make sure that we use our free will to choose to do the wrong thing when the, when the non-conscious uh, problem solver comes up with an EDP, an entrenched dysfunctional pattern that, that actually shouldn't be there, but it is there. And, and so, so the conscience becomes a helper, and in that sense, it can lead us astray. So we're gonna learn all about the conscience in this, uh, in this chapter. You say that it is immediately helpful to therapists to know that when we encounter pride, shame, or guilt, we should look for the values on which those feelings are based. Well, that's right, because what's unique, um, these conscience-based emotions of pride, shame, and guilt, they are emotions, but they're, they're different from the other emotions because other emotions are just reactions to things. These are all based on a judgment about something and are reactions to the judgment. And so in that sense, they're different from all of the other kinds of emotion. And for that reason, when we hear guilt or pride or shame, when we experience those things in, in talking with our, our patients, we can be sure right then and there that we're talking about the conscience. And internalized values as well, no? Exactly. So, so one of the things the conscience includes is internalized values. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit and say that a good way to think about it is it's sort of like the legal system. 
you know, if all we had in the legal system was enforcement, then it would be chaotic. But the enforcement is based on laws, and those laws are written down. Well, the conscience has values, and those, those values are the basis of judgments that get made. And then according to that judgment, then emotions are produced. And so when we judge that we've, we haven't followed the values, the rules in our conscientious law book, then we feel shame or guilt. And when we've done a good job of following the values in our conscience, then we feel a sense of pride. And so in that way, those feelings are entirely dependent on judgment. And those judgments are entirely dependent on having a store of internalized values to guide the judgments. Maybe this would be a good time um, for you to help us understand the differences between values, attitudes, ideals, and prohibitions. Okay, when, when I first got interested in, in this distinction, I asked myself, you know, what are the different things, what are, what are different kinds of, um, of contents? What are the different kinds of laws that the conscience bases its judgments on? And there are actually quite a few. There, there are values, uh, which are clear values, tell us what's good and what's bad. And then also there are attitudes, like, for example, hate is an attitude. But that is one of those, one of those that has similar characteristics to uh, conscience-based values. Some people just carry hate for a certain group or certain characteristics, and then they make judgments based on that. So values, attitudes, Ideals are also part of the conscience. So we have, we have a set of kind of images of what we think things ought to be, how we, we would like to be ourselves and how we would like the world to be. How like a template of what perfection should be. Exactly. And then there are prohibitions. Thou shalt not. That obviously belongs to the conscience. So when I say values, and then what I really mean is all four of those different elements values, attitudes, ideals, and prohibitions. You make a very important distinction, or you bring to our awareness in the book a very important distinction in the neurophysiology of the conscience and its location in the brain. And you differentiate it from emotions because of its geography in the brain. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes, it's really interesting that Freud, for example, understood that these things are different from other kinds of mental contents. And then it turns out, when we listen to Jak Panksepp, a uh, neurophysiologist, explains that, that we have many emotions like fear and, and anger and uh, pleasure that come from primitive parts of our brain that are, that are beneath the cortex. And those emotions are things that we probably share pretty closely with other mammals. But the emotions that we have as humans that we don't share with mammals are the conscience-based emotions because they originate in the cortex. Specifically, they, they come from the, the right-hand prefrontal cortex is the, is the origin of those values and, and ultimately of the emotions that uh, that go with them. So even physiologically, pride, shame, and guilt are different from all the other emotions. 
so if the conscience then is is a, a guideline for for um, appropriate positive behavior, pro-social behavior uh, based on values, could you, could you tell us a little bit about how the conscience can become a pathological factor in behavior? Right. First, let's let, let me say a little bit about the conscience when it works the way it's supposed to, and and how we're probably different from other mammals. Uh, if you think about about dogs, for example, uh, dogs or, or wolves are always testing the limits and the alpha wolf has to spend a tremendous amount of time and energy keeping everybody in line. And we human beings are different from that because, and maybe it's because we, we our development is so prolonged that if, if our parents had to spend our entire developmental period watching over our every move to discipline us when we did the wrong thing, it would be exhausting. So what happens that's different with humans is we internalize a whole self-regulatory system so that when we do, we internalize our values and then when we do the right thing, we feel good. And when we do the wrong thing, we feel shame and guilt. And so we humans probably different from, from other mammals, though they may have some precursors of this system, we have a portable, internalized, self-regulatory system that's different from, let's say, wolves maybe have a little bit of fear when they do the wrong thing. They have a little bit of fear that they're going to get punished. But humans punish, our, we punish ourselves. And so since we have this powerful, self-regulating uh, reward and punishment system, it's not a big surprise that sometimes that system gets things wrong. And sometimes it punishes us for good behavior and gives us a sense of pride for things that are dysfunctional. Can you uh, give us an example? Yeah. Uh, one example that, again, I think, I think many clinicians are not aware of is if you think about anorexia nervosa. It's a beautiful example of the superego gone awry, of the conscience gone awry, because when anorexia patients succeed in eating, let's say all of their caregivers, all of their helpers are telling them, you, you have to eat more, you're going to starve. And so they do it. What do they feel? They feel intense shame. They feel disgusting. They feel awful and gross. And that's because they have a value system that says thin is good and fat is very, very bad. Why do they have that? Well, the best guess from my experience is that depriving oneself of food becomes is a proxy for not needing nurturing and love. If you have a problem with nurturing and love and you want more than you can have, then one way to protect yourself from disappointment is to not need it in the first place. And that gets translated into food so that not needing food becomes a way to protect oneself from excessive needs of any kind. And so, so the conscience internalizes this value system that gives an anorexia patient great pride when they are even another two pounds thinner and, and a sense of tremendous shame and disgust when they've, uh, when they've eaten something, even though the eating is healthy. That's really interesting. I'm just going to add that we naturally think of our conscience as sort of the Jiminy Cricket, the good guy on your shoulder who always knows the right thing and always tells you to do the right thing. And so 
we don't question our conscience. And so it's kind of shocking as a therapist, um, it's shocking for your, your patient to say, you know what, I think your conscience is wrong here. Your conscience is giving you the wrong judgment and trying to get you to do the wrong thing. Like for example, maybe your conscience thinks that you're a person of little value and your conscience is trying to get you to hunch yourself over and disappear in the crowd because you're not an important person. Well, that's not very healthy. And so then what happens is if you put yourself forward, if somebody says, you know, stand up and, and be counted, you feel shame. And on the other hand, if you disappear in the crowd, then you feel comfortable. You feel even some, some pride at not being, not being somebody who values themselves. So it's really important then to distinguish. Um, I, I tend to think of, of values as being uh, externally directed um, and then internalized. But really values can, can well up as, as um, conclusions drawn from past experiences so that really they are beliefs they can be beliefs about the self drawn from pathological dysfunctional psycho-emotional environments yep that's exactly what happens and we're going to get to that very shortly yeah before we do i think we ought to just just for people who get hung up on the difference between shame and guilt i don't think it's a very important difference but what i do think is that shame is more global. It's about whether you're a good or a bad person, where guilt is about whether you did a good or a bad action. And the difference is developmental. That prior to developing a solid sense of yourself and your own value, then shame can, can be internalized and can distort one's sense of overall being a valuable or, or not so valuable person. Whereas after maybe, I don't know, age four or five or something like that, as the sense of self begins to be more solidified, then, then we're more resistant to changes in our attitudes or towards ourselves, but we still are capable of learning values and feeling shame and pride about actions we take that, that don't bring our overall value as a human being into question. And so to that point, you assert a very interesting point, which is that children will internalize a sense of shame when, when faced with adult caregivers' failures, because their caregivers' failures is intolerable to them. They would rather internalize and make themselves responsible and feel unworthy and, and engage in the magical thinking that if they were just perfect, then perhaps the dysfunctional dynamic at home or the failing caregiver would be able to be reformed. Right. And, and that can become an ongoing source of perfectionism or can be an ongoing source of shame, of feeling constantly badly about oneself. I, I should be better. I should be different. And, and so um, this is a place where early deprivation has a tremendously important impact I've also noticed recently another way this can happen that's kind of, you wouldn't think of, is people who are very hard on themselves and really, really uh, have very rigid kinds of values. And what I've seen is sometimes this is what comes out of a family that's very permissive. 
that the family doesn't give any sharp guidelines to the children. So what do the children do? Well, sort of like Lord of the Flies, I think, they, they develop more rigid and more draconian values for themselves because, because they don't want to be unregulated. They don't want to be out of control. Nobody likes that. And so sometimes children really create their own value system. And when they do, it tends to be harsher and more rigid than the ones that we, that we internalize from the attitudes and values of our, our family. Dr. Smith, this is not part of the podcast, but I deal with a lot of perfectionism or I, I work with, with patients who suffer from perfectionism. Should I look for early childhood neglect or dysfunction? Well, you, you certainly want to ask yourself, how did that value, why did that value get internalized? And we're going to talk about that in the, in the next couple of, couple of parts in this, in this podcast. Right. So, so that leads us right into the internalization of values, which you discuss at length uh, in the book. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. You know, there was a point at which I began to realize that values were really different and, than other kinds of mental contents. One of the ways that, that marks that difference, for example, is that we feel pride about our values. If I say, you know, you have, you have good values, it makes you kind of glow and you say, yeah, you know, I really, I believe in my values. I have allegiance to my values. I think they're, I think they're important and they're good. If I ask you, how do you feel about your likes and dislikes? Then you're going to just say, well, those are my dislikes and, and likes. I don't have any particular pride in them. They, they don't represent something that I, that I value. They're just how I feel. And so that's how you can tell that the values that belong to the conscience are really a different kind of mental contents than things like likes and dislikes. And, and that's the error that I think much of psychological research and theorizing has made, is failing to realize, to, to see that distinction, because values, attitudes, ideals, and prohibitions don't work the same as any other mental contents, they're quite different, and we'll see how. So when I, when I began to be aware of that difference, I asked myself, well, how do we get these things? How do these values get internalized? And I looked at a, at a number of different places to, to find the answer. One was Freud, and, and Freud has a couple of ideas. He talks about identification with the lost object, that when somebody disappears from your life, you tend to internalize their characteristics. And he talked about the, the Oedipus complex, where there's an internalization of a prohibition out of fear of retaliation. And, and then I ran into a book by a couple of sociologists uh, that's called Snapping. And uh, it's a very interesting book that talks about cult induction and brainwashing and things like that, which represent sudden events where people internalize a whole new set of values. And when that happens, there's a sense of something huge changing inside the mind all of a sudden. But what makes those things happen? Well, to make a long story short, the one thing that all of these instances have in common is what I would call connection anxiety. Children want to belong. People who join cults want to belong. 
the times when people internalize values are always times when we feel alone and we feel a need for connection. Now, I'm going to apply that in a surprising way because then the next question is, well, you see that people who've been abused, who've been frankly traumatized, especially by family members and incest and things like that, almost universally have low self-esteem. And that low self-esteem, that sense of shame about oneself, really uh, represents a, a negative value. Well, where does that value come from? Clearly, it's internalized from the people who didn't value that child. Sometimes you'll hear in the way that, that patients talk about themselves, in negative ways they talk about themselves, you'll even hear the words that were used by the perpetrator. And so we internalize values from a perpetrator. Well, how could that be? And that led me to thinking how lonely it is to be a victim, how, how alone one feels when the people you trust, when the people who have all the power are exhibiting a, a negative attitude towards yourself. And so I think what happens is instinctively, as strange as it may seem, the need for connection extends even to the person who's abusing you. And people internalize the values of that person in order to salvage some sense of connection, connection even with a person who, who you should hate. And that's how it works. A connection to a person that you desperately need for species survival. Exactly. This is, a, is an age-old instinct because human beings are social beings. And if we don't have our interpersonal connections, we're dead. And this is the crux of uh, women who enter and stay in abusive marriages, for instance. Exactly. It, that, that need for, for connection is so primordial and so desperate, especially when in early life the connections were faulty, uh, that, that it, it goes on and, and continues to create trouble uh, year in and year out. So we're talking about values that are internalized at a young age. But you state in the book that values can be internalized throughout life. That's right. And, and you know, my favorite example comes from, um, from a couple of colleagues. Actually, one of my best teachers explained that when he was in the army, he didn't believe in it. He was a liberal and he really didn't believe in being the army, but in the army, but he was drafted. In basic training, they learned to march in unison. And so um, when they came to graduation, to his horror, he found that he had a sense of pride about being able to march in perfect unison. He hated it. He didn't believe in it. And yet there he was feeling proud of himself. So that was an example of internalizing a value as an adult. So it happens and it's a regular thing. And that's how we have things like brainwashing of adults and the Stockholm syndrome and things like that. Those are other examples of internalization. So then in, in, the, um, in the work that you cited, Snapping, by Conway and Siegelman, it, it seems to be that in trying to satisfy uh, the connection anxiety, people are willing to throw away all of their previously internalized values in the name of joining a cult and a group. 
and that suggests then a, a certain amount of speed, right? Yes. And you, so you talk about internalization being either fast or slow. Yes. So, so sometimes we internalize because we're desperate and, we're ha and we have to, or we even want to, to join a cult or something like that. And so it can happen all of a sudden in a very dramatic way. A beautiful example of that is the last scene in The Taming of the Shrew. It's a, it's a very nice example of, of all of the elements of, of brainwashing um, that, that take place. And Shakespeare understood this uh, very well. But then there's also internalization of values, especially in, of, of positive values, that goes on gradually and, and, and step by step. And, and sometimes we want to, and you can hear children sometimes like saying to themselves, you're not supposed to do this, you're, you know, over and over again, as if they're working on internalizing a certain, a certain rule or, or value. So, so sometimes it's slow, sometimes it's sudden. Uh, when it's sudden, I think it's, it's, it really comes out of a more of a, of a desperate kind of situation. And I think the sudden kinds are more likely to be the, the negative ones that causes trouble, but not always. You make a very interesting analogy, uh, comparing uh, values and the conscience to an electric fence. Can you tell us a little bit more? Yes. So, so the way I think of it, let's go back to the first example we had very early in the podcast of Jack. And, and Jack is, you remember this kid who is, um, was pretty much deprived when he, whatever he might have needed in the way of, of support from his family, he wasn't going to get. And so what happens? Well, the first stage of self-protection in that situation is to feel a sense of fear when you're anticipating needing something from somebody. And so Jack probably had a period when he was afraid to ask his dad for something because his dad was only going to yell at him because he was alcoholic and, and drunk and so on. But pretty soon after, what happens is instead of living with fear all the time, that's when the conscience goes to work and we internalize a value that says asking for support is a shameful thing. Asking for support is bad. And so Jack learns to be this rugged individualist who never asks anybody for help. And that's why eventually as an adult, he develops a panic attack because he needs a whole lot of support because he's got a new job and a new baby coming, but he's prohibited internally from asking for help that he needs. And so his mind goes into turmoil. It doesn't have an answer. He either has to violate his conscience and ask for help, which he can't do, or something's going to go haywire, and that's where the panic attack comes out. So he's created for himself an internal electric fence that as soon as he gets near anything that looks like weakness or dependency, he feels shame, and, and he'll stay away from that. And so in that way, internalized values, especially the unhealthy kind that protect us from pursuing normal healthy needs can be thought of as, as internal electric fences that were created by us as children in order to keep ourselves out of trouble. You, you mentioned that uh, when patients exhibit inappropriate shame or guilt, the therapist should expect remarkable resistance to change. Could you tell us more? Right, so if values are supposed to function as, as self-regulation, 
then they have to be resistant to change. Because what if, what if any time you said, oh, come on, please, Mr. Conscience, you know, let me go ahead and do this. And the conscience said, oh, all right, okay. Well, then, then our self-regulation wouldn't be working at all. And so, so in order to function the way it's supposed to, the conscience has to be resistant to change. And that means resistance to changing our values. And that applies not only to healthy values, but also to unhealthy ones. So we have to expect as therapists, if our goal is to change an unhealthy value, we know right from the get-go that we're up against a, a real serious challenge. Indeed, a real serious challenge, especially when you say that values are permanent. That's right. And, you know, we talk about memory reconsolidation by which uh, old unhealthy memories can be erased. As far as I can tell so far, I don't think that works for values. I think values, once they're written in the brain, they're either protected so that they don't change or there's something special about, their, about the way those memory cells are configured that makes them indelible. Well, then what can we do? How can we, how can we deal with this? I think the answer is that, that we're going to have to layer on a separate new value that can override the old unhealthy one. But let me, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. Let me, let me go back. How do we know that values are permanent? It's simple. Anybody who's treated clients who've, who've suffered from early life trauma knows that that low self-esteem and that kind of that inappropriate shame and guilt can come back any time. Even with effective treatment, all it takes is a few pieces of bad luck, a few bad things happening, and the old feelings of shame and unworthiness come back. And the best treatment, the most successful people in treatment still have a tendency to relapse into those kinds of feelings. So that's why I think that the values in, in the conscience are very, very solidly planted and probably not, not changeable in their original form. Another example that's a, a useful one is to think about toilet training. Because when you're, when you're 90 years old and you're incontinent, what do you feel about losing control of your bowels or your urine? You feel shame. You know, and totally inappropriate, but that's the, that's the value system that we learned uh, and when we were two or three. Sure, but sometimes we, especially using EMDR, we can change belief about the self, where they would differ from the values, where, for instance, with toilet training, we mm -hmm. would say, well, yes, I want to remain continent, of course. That is a value that I will uphold. Mm-hmm. But if I have a medical condition, sometimes I am incontinent and that does not make me bad. Yes. So here's what I think. I think what you're talking about is actually learning a new value that layers on top of the old one. And my argument would be that, that even with that successful treatment, that the old one can reappear sometimes there's always a possibility of relapse is what you're saying. Exactly. In the same way that, for example, alcoholism is something that you don't conquer once and for all, it can always reappear. And so that's another example of something in the brain that, that has a kind of lasting power that is particularly powerful, but it can be 
in practice day in and day out, it can be kept under control. What about when we have self-contradictory values? So that's very much aligned with what we're just talking about, because if we have one value that says I'm a, I'm a worthless person and another value that says I'm just as valuable as anybody else, those are two contradictory values. And that's one of the properties of this system is there's nothing that says you can't have values that are contradictory, that, that are completely opposed to each other, that are locked in the same set of law books. You can have one law that says X is a bad thing and another law that says X is a good thing. That's how the system works. And that fortunately is what gives us the possibility of helping people internalize a new healthy value that can override the old one or sometimes uncover a healthy value that was there before. Let's say somebody had quite a few good years in their early development and felt pretty good about themselves and then some bad things happened and they wound up internalizing a negative set of values, we might be able to, in therapy, we might be able to reawaken those positive values that were already there. In the treatment principles section of this chapter, you have a, a heading titled, Tread Lightly. I, that's right, because as, just as I said that we have a sense of pride about our values, if you go marching in and tell your patient that their values are bad and you need to change those and they suck and they're causing you a whole lot of trouble, you're really threatening that person's sense of identity. And, and our instinct is to take sides with our conscience. No, no, my conscience is right. I, I, my conscience can't be wrong. And pretty soon you, the therapist, are the bad guy. You're the one who represents bad values and my conscience is right. And so you have to be pretty careful when you bring people's values into question and, and do it quite, um, quite gently and carefully and step by step. But you, you were right a, a few minutes ago, you know, you were talking about EMDR and how you want to start with an intellectual understanding it really helps for people to be crystal clear about why they got those values, that they got them from a negative source, that they're not helpful values, that they're values that under better conditions they wouldn't have. And so when we're crystal clear that the values are pathological and that they're not a part of your conscience that you want to support, that's kind of the foundation of being able to make change happen. So what I say when people ask me, what do you have to do to change values? My instant answer is the kitchen sink. Is this is something that's so challenging that you need to throw everything at it. You need to use every technique and every method you have. And the first one is to develop a crystal clear understanding that these values are pathological and they need to change. Right, so this is really an art form how to throw a kitchen sink with delicacy <laughs> and a light touch. Uh, that, that's right. That's right. Those two metaphors have uh, are a little interesting when you put them together, isn't it? Yeah. But, absolutely. Yeah. And I would say that, you know, part of the kitchen sink here would then, you know, include modeling positive values and attitudes that we as therapists need to do that to start laying the groundwork for um, a more 
more functioning, more appropriate values. Uh, absolutely. And so if you ask a therapist, well, do you want to give your values to your client? We'll say, oh, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not here to impose my values on my client. But the truth is that some of the values that are built into therapy, such as valuing health over unhealth and valuing our client, having a, a positive regard for our client is built into therapy and it's a very important positive thing. And so it's a good thing that clients take from us, that they internalize from us the positive feelings about themselves. That's an important part of the therapeutic action. And so this is one place where internalizing values from your therapist, there's nothing wrong with it. Right. And I, I think that, um, it's especially appropriate for clients who have attachment issues who were not properly loved and cared for and that we as therapists can hold that space for them and show them warmth and positive regard. Mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a very uh, interesting kind of paradox there because we've talked before about how the inner child thinks that the solution to deprivation is to have you, the therapist, Give, give me everything that I missed out on. And that doesn't really work because ultimately you can't do it. But there's another element to that, and that's the, the internalized value part of it, where part of the problem is, is feeling like the, the shortfall has to be made whole. But the value part is that where the person has created one of those internal electric fences, that says I'm not worthy of receiving anything, then the therapy itself represents a, a, a contrary value, a contradictory value to that one. And so we're working on two different pieces of pathology at the same time. Talk to us about civil disobedience, please. When we're dealing with really tough things, just like in, in AA, they use, they use phrases and people think those slogans are kind of silly, but the reason they're useful and they're appropriate is because the, the habits that are ingrained in addiction are so powerful. And in a similar way, when we're trying to change the conscience, when we're trying to change value systems, those are also very powerful. So we need some, some potent words here. And that's where I like the phrase civil disobedience, because what it means is that sometimes it's good to do things that are against the law. And, and that is, the ultimate way of challenging values is to behave according to what you really believe, according to the values that you really want to internalize and going against the values that you have decided are unhealthy. But when you do that, as therapists, we need to expect what I call a backlash. In other words, when your client, just like that anorexia patient who ate and then felt disgusted afterwards, when clients do the right thing, they're going to have a reaction from their conscience. They're going to feel shame or, or even guilt. When people sometimes, for example, get clear and experience some anger towards a perpetrator of abuse, they often feel guilty afterwards. Oh, maybe I'm too hard on him. Maybe, you shouldn't have, maybe I shouldn't be feeling this anger. Maybe that's wrong. Is that the connection anxiety triggered? Connection anxiety originally triggered the internalization, but once it's internalized that the perpetrator is right and I'm wrong, then when you begin to realize that the perpetrator was wrong and you were right, 
you're going to feel guilt. And then in that case, you need to step into an act of civil disobedience. By you, I mean the patient. Right. And we as therapists are going to need to be ready to say, yes, I understand. That's a, a common phenomenon that when you try to change your values and you try to act according to correct values and against the incorrect values, then your conscience is still going to get upset about it and is still going to give you some feelings of, of shame or guilt. And those can be very powerful. So, so what, I, what I say to people is when you're up against that kind of backlash, then you need to lean into health. It's like leaning into a strong wind. If you're walking along a road and there's a powerful wind, you just need to lead in, lean into it and keep trudging along. It's not a place where, where progress is going to go easily and quickly. It's, it's going to be kind of a grind against these feelings of shame and guilt. And maybe unconsciously, the mind is going to try to sabotage, is going to try to create some roadblocks to prevent change to prevent civil, civil disobedience. I imagine that civil disobedience would be complicated by feelings of love for the perpetrator. I can think of um, a child who was abused by a parent, but that parent was also at times extremely loving and very nurturing in many ways. How does civil disobedience find its way there? Absolutely. That's going to create a tremendous amount of ambivalence. Um, what I think is pretty typical is usually the feelings are separated in the mind. The loving feelings are separated from the angry feelings. And very often people also feel a sense of shame about having positive feelings about the perpetrator. And so th because, because they feel somewhat responsible for what happened. And, and so all of that gets heavily buried. And so my experience is that usually we have to kind of deal with the negative aspects of, of incest and abuse first. And, and when we've processed the anger and the hurt and the pain, then very gently it's possible to open up that yes, there were positive feelings as well. And there we generally run into, again, a value system that says, that says you, the child, were responsible for this, these bad things, and, and it's your fault because you liked it. And that is very shameful to uncover. So at least that's been my experience. So that's something that is kind of the last element to, um, to deal with in therapy and one that takes a lot of delicacy. And so then with this delicacy that is required of us, I think at all times, because the work of being a therapist really uh, calls for us to be able to use all available resources, therapeutic resources, throwing the kitchen sink, once again, to, to return to that metaphor, um, with as much tact and care and consideration and positive regard as possible. Right, absolutely. So, so from here on, and for, for all of the therapists who are listening, I want you to remember that when you notice that, that there are feelings of pride or shame or guilt, 
that automatically you should be thinking that judgments are being made and those judgments are based on some form of values, attitudes, um, ideals or prohibitions that have been internalized. And I want you to ask yourself, where do those values come from and what master do they serve? Do they serve a positive purpose in helping with self-regulation or are they serving a, a negative purpose and reinforcing entrenched dysfunctional patterns? Because these are helpers. They're, they're when the non-conscious problem solver thinks that some dysfunctional behavior is exactly what needs to happen, then the conscience can be a helper that pushes even harder to make sure we follow that. So I want you to think about those values and then to be aware of the process of overriding unhealthy values by installing healthy ones and how that's a process that takes some delicacy and a lot of work and some confronting backlash um, because that's a natural part of the process. So it's, it's quite distinct from other, other aspects of psychotherapy. And when we treat it that way, I think we do better. And I would hope that in, in the years to come that researchers begin to recognize that values are different from likes and dislikes, for example, and to begin to apply some research to this as a separate and very, very special aspect of how the mind works. I think this concludes today's podcast, Dr. Smith. Would you agree? I, I totally agree. I think that's right. And so next time we're going to talk about something else. We're going to talk about automatic thoughts or, or free associations. And those are another kind of helper, another way that the non-conscious problem solver pops ideas into our head to try to influence our behavior. I hope everybody remembers uh, all about the conscience because it's really, really important. So next week, the third helper, thoughts. Yep. Today, we just concluded chapter 17. Thank you for listening to the end, everybody. We hope it's been helpful to you. And we'd love you to visit Dr. Smith's website at www.howtherapyworks.com, where you can purchase the book, Psychotherapy, a Practical Guide, and find other articles for clients and therapists. Would you like to add anything, Dr. Smith? I think that's it. So I just want to say we'll see you next time. Great. Looking forward to it. Thank you, everybody. Okay, bye.